Welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. My name is Amber Kluwer, and I enjoy sharing my story and those of other people living their best life with this disease. Before we dive into this episode, I have a few quick announcements. Number one, the Diabetes Daily Grind is a nonprofit charitable organization. Funds raised help keep the podcast, website, and advocacy efforts afloat. It's easy. Just click the donate link on my website or purchase a copy of Doing Diabetes Differently. Number two, and this is a big one for me. I've lived with type 1 diabetes for decades and never considered an insulin pump until meeting a few behind the scenes passionate insulet leaders. And in case you didn't know, Insulet is the maker of the Omnipod tubeless insulin delivery systems. I tiptoed into using a CGM ages ago and my diabetes management has never been better. So when I discovered Omnipod 5, I was sold. <laughs> I'm in the process of insurance approval and can't wait to share that I finally moved from MDI therapy to being a potter. This is a totally new experience for me and as you know, and I'm not shy and will share my thoughts with the world. Why did I choose Omnipod over the other options you asked? It was simple. It's tubeless and waterproof. It integrates the Dexcom G6 to automatically adjust insulin based on the CGM value to help keep you in range. And the automatic insulin adjustments happen every five minutes, even when you're sleeping. Thank you for that. I can't wait to try Omnipod 5. And who knows, I might change my tagline from cheers to the highs and lows to there's nothing like being in range. Stay tuned. If you'd like to try Omnipod 5 yourself, you may be eligible for a trial. For eligibility, free trial terms and conditions, and full safety information, visit omnipod.com backslash DDG. All right, enough rambling. Let's get started. Today's guest, Zipor Cars, is a former soloist ballerina with the New York City Ballet, where she performed for 16 years on stage and in televised performances. She is also a diabetes spokesperson and educator who hopes to continue to inspire people to live healthy, active lives through her work as an author, teacher, and motivational speaker. Zipporah, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. I'm going to start with, A, where are you calling in from? I am from Los Angeles, California, which is where I now reside as a teacher. I moved back home. I lived okay. in New York City for 20 years when I was performing, and now I'm back home in Los Angeles. Busy lifestyles for both towns, but that's a totally different I mean, lifestyle for sure. Yeah. Well, as we start most episodes, I want to, obviously you have type 1 diabetes. Let's talk about your diagnosis and how that all came about. Okay. Well, I, I'll go back a little bit. I was a young dancer and I moved to New York City at the age of 15 to study at the School of American Ballet, which is the official school for the New York City Ballet. And at the time, the the great genius choreographer, George Balanchine, who brought dance from Russia to America, was still alive at the time. Mm. And so I moved there at 15 to study with the school. I was asked to join the New York City Ballet by George Balanchine at the age of 17. <laughs> Unfortunately, he passed away that first year. So I became a member of the New York City Ballet under Jerome Robbins and Peter Martins as co-director. Jerome Robbins of West Side Story, Fiddler on the Roof fame. And it was incredibly exciting. I was 18 years old. By the time I was 20 years old, I was plucked out from the group to be the starring ballerina in the Nutcracker, the Sugar Plum Fairy. Wow. And my, I was rising up. It was a dream. I was living, 
you know, an incredible experience as, as difficult as it was because being a ballerina is very athletic. Mm. It was all new to me. I had to get my body. You know, I always say I was more, more cult than thoroughbred. You know, I wasn't the strongest athlete, but I was very enthusiastic and very passionate and very artistic. And so my body just needed a lot of catching up, but I really wasn't used to the schedule of dancing for, you know, 13 hours a day about Mm. for weeks and months at a a time before you have a break. So when I was 21, what happened was I really thought it was just burnout. I thought I was exhausted because we were in the end, it was the end of a winter season, a three month long winter season of, of dancing 13 hours a day. I've never been a good sleeper. The workload affected me with my anxiety and my exhaustion where I all of a sudden just lost the ability to sleep. And I was getting two and three hours of sleep a night. I was really exhausted. I had a lot of pressure on me because they were giving me all these leading roles. So on top of all my core de ballet, which is the group roles, I was in featured roles and there mm-hmm. I wasn't getting hours off. It was really, really a whirlwind time. And then all of a sudden I developed these symptoms where I was thirsty all the time. I was urinating all the time. I was mm-hmm. hungry all the time. I was spaced out and dizzy, you know, the things we know. Yeah. But what got me to the doctor was I had a premiere performance coming up. And as ballerinas, we have to be able to lift our arms over our head. And I developed these infections. I, I have very sloped shoulders. We were always putting on costumes for other, made for other people's bodies. It wasn't mm-hmm. like they made a costume for each role that we did just for our bodies. So I was often putting on costumes that were a longer torso than what I have. And I would put my shoulders down and it would, would rub underneath Mm. my arms and, but it never turned into sores. And all of a sudden the scraping, I I developed, they were almost, I hate saying this. It was almost boils, these huge pussy infections. And I, Mm. as a ballerina, you know, I put my arms up and, and it hurt to lift my arms. So I remember going to an urgent care and they gave me a shot of antibiotics and I just, I was, I felt awful. Some, I knew something was going on in my body, but like mm-hmm. I said, I thought it was just exhaustion from the, the work schedule. And I just, yeah. need, I needed a week off, which was going to happen in about a month from then. So the next thing that happened is all of a sudden the, the few sores turned into like 10, 10 sores under each arm. So I went to a, a dermatologist. The company gave me the number of a dermatologist and he gave me a different kind of antibiotic and sent me home. And then they all got worse. And so I call, I call this poor doctor on a weekend is was probably like seven in the morning. And he says, you know, look, lady, I'm only a dermatologist. If you want more answers, you're going to have to go to get some blood work and find out what's going on in your body. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, I just don't have time for this. We had on my one day off, you know, I'm, I'm doing a yoga class and I'm getting my massages and I'm doing my laundry and I have to get ready for the show week. And I, I don't have time to deal with these doctors. Right. So basically I, I had to go because I didn't know how I was going to get through the performance itself with these mm-hmm. sores. And so I went to the doctor and that's when I was told that I had diabetes. And did they automatically say so you're, you're 21 at this point, right? Yeah. And do they think you had type one or type two? This is that, okay, so it's 1987. So we're in the 80s, which now they call the dark ages of diabetes because they they didn't know as much. 
But also, you know, to their credit, there weren't as many cases in the 80s of people older with type one, type one, and the younger kids getting type two, which is more became yeah. much more common in the 2000s. So in those days, because I was 21 and she was not a specialist, I went to just a, a general practitioner. Mm -hmm. So was not a specialist in diabetes. Yes, she thought I had type two diabetes. She actually sent me away because I, I had to perform that night. I mean, I was just anxious. I had lied to the company and said I didn't feel well. So I skipped a rehearsal, took a cab, went to the doctor, got all the pamphlets about what was going to happen to me. You know, I'm going to go mm -hmm. blonde and lose my limbs and get a heart attack and kidney failure. <laughs> and then I just jumped back in. And she says to me, she says, you know, you have to make another appointment and we'll talk about what to do about this. And before I left, she's, and I said, well, isn't there anything I can do? Is there something I should do with eating? And she says, we don't want you to go overboard and eat the whole cake, but you can have a piece of cake. And I was just looked yeah. at this woman and, you know, I'm sure she meant well, yeah. but for me, how I took it was, you don't know who you're talking to. I'm a disciplined ballerina. I'm not going to eat the piece of cake anyhow. You never even asked me if I like cake. Uh, <laughs> you gave me no information, sent me on my way. It's ne She never said the words, you have type 2 diabetes, but she said, we'll talk about what to do in medication when you come back. So there was no urgency and there was no talk of insulin. So mm. then, then I flew home. And my father, who's a, a doctor, cardiologist, took me to a colleague of her, his who also was not a specialist. And that person actually said to me, I had type 2 diabetes mm -hmm. and gave me, sent me to a nutritionist that gave me a whole list of foods to eat that I wasn't going to eat anyhow. But they were telling me like I had to eat it in order to deal with this. I, I I was, the whole thing was very, very confusing. Well, and for those of you who are newly diagnosed or, I mean, we both had diabetes for it because I was diagnosed in 1984. You were given a food pyramid. I mean, it was like, and carbohydrates were high on the list. A high carbohydrate diet is what yeah. doctors were prescribing for diabetes people with diabetes. Yeah. I mean, it's so crazy looking back on that. There was no carb counting. It was like, here's what you're going to eat. Every meal is structured. And it was funny when we had our initial chat, we talked about graham crackers because I would have to eat a graham cracker before I went into PE. Granted, I was eight years old, different, but looking back on that, eating a graham cracker before doing any, it made me feel terrible. You know, it's just like, again, uh, doctors were doing the best and what they could and what information was provided at the time. So you, how did you finally get the type one diagnosis? It was... About two years after, which you, in my head, once I went back to dancing and I worked with my grandmother who had been a dancer herself, mm -hmm. she did vaudeville in, in, in the 50s, 60s. Uh, and, and then later on, my, my mother was a dancer, modern dancer, went to Juilliard. Basically, the whole family, the whole family were dancers. I went to my grandmother when I got sick because mm -hmm. I found no answers with the doctor. So I went to my grandmother because she was not only a dancer and understood the discipline and what I wanted to do and my dream, mm -hmm. but she was a health food nut, quote unquote, long before that was even a term. And so she and I really analyzed everything that I ate and what affected me in what way. We put together a program and she's the one who helped me get back to New York mm -hmm. and back to dancing. And when I went back to dancing, my blood sugar started to normalize. And I think because 
you know, now they, they say there's a type three diabetes. Yeah. I have to wonder if I would have been diagnosed if I was diagnosed today, if I would have been diagnosed with a t- as a type three, because I must have still had some insulin, insulin. Yep. and putting it because the exercise allowed me to even come off the medication. So for two years, I actually wasn't on any, any medication, any insulin, and my blood sugars came down. The problem was if I did anything, if I ate anything that was any carbs Probably in it, yeah. Or if I had trouble sleeping one night, if I was stressed out, if anything happened in my life that wasn't a perfect plan, then it, my blood sugars went up. And so I was on a tightrope of pressure to mm-hmm. be perfect all the time. And it was not a healthy dynamic, but I felt that I was a success. I felt I was the poster yeah. child for overcoming diabetes and I did it naturally and I was taking the herbs and the this and the, you know, the eat the cans of the tuna fish, you know, I go on tour <laughs> with the company and everybody's going out eating and I'm sitting in, you know, I'm sitting there eating almonds and tuna fish. You know, I was so strict in what I was doing in order to stay on track. And then what happened was two years into it, I, no matter how many cans of tuna and almonds yeah. I eat, my blood sugars just started going up and up and up and up and up. And so that's when at that point, I didn't even have a doctor in New York because I never yeah. went back to that initial person. So I found a doctor who advocated tight control. Mm-hmm. And in those days, that was very pi- pioneering. Mm-hmm. And I liked I liked what he was saying. So I traveled outside of the city and I went to him and he was advocating a low carbohydrate diet back in the 80s. He's the one who tested me and he says, you've been misdiagnosed. You're type 1 diabetic that's when my world came crashing down. So this is two years into the diagnosis that I actually have to come out of denial and accept my situation and try to even fathom how am I going to perform on insulin? How am I going to do this? Can can I do this? So you're so lucky that you didn't go into DKA. I mean, literally that you didn't die through that two-year period. You, I mean, you're on this planet for a reason, for real on that one, because that is some crazy stuff. So the type one diagnosis, and like you were saying, you're so active, your lifestyle. I mean, diabetes definitely throws a wrench in things. So let's talk about you going back to New York and getting back and, you know, you're still dancing, you're still doing everything. Did you tell your, oh, the head person or the team about the diagnosis? I told them when I first found out about it, that I had been diagnosed with diabetes and I had to go home and I had to figure out what to do about it because mm-hmm. I had to leave the end of the season. Mm-hmm. I found out nobody knew what that meant. Yeah. My director, when I came back to New York, so I'd been gone for five weeks, I was more afraid, more afraid to be gone and have them wonder how bad I was than to show up and maybe not look so good. Yeah. I felt better just to show up. And the first day of class, he came up to me and he took me by the arm and he said, are you all better now? And I looked at him and I shook my head, yes. And then I just went straight back to dancing. And that was all we ever talked about my diabetes for the next 16 years. Wow. Are you all better now? And I said, yes. I was living in an environment where I knew that if they knew what I was going through and what I was up against, they weren't going to give me parts. They weren't yeah. going to put me out there. Maybe they would say, we're here for you and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll support you. Yeah. I, 
it was only my third year in the company. I was a very new member. Yes, I had, they'd been giving me leading roles, but there, there were a lot of, there's a lot of talent around me and a lot of people who were just as good and, and just as cap- much more physically capable. I was, I was, I was afraid to be honest. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what was up ahead, you know, to my, you know, supporting myself then. I didn't really know how to explain it because I really honestly thought I could do it. Yeah. But I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't know what was what I didn't know what the challenge of not only taking insulin and not having the dangerous lows do to me, but the highs were going to do to my body and the effect of of lactic acid buildup, which is much greater for a diabetic, the circulation issues, just even getting warm in your body, you know, warming up your muscles, the challenges that come with being a, a person with diabetes and being an athlete, we weren't just running a marathon once and then recuperating. We were yeah. running a marathon every day. Yeah, and that's crazy. And they're and not like, you know, like an Olympic athlete, they do studies where they they test how much recuperation you need and mm-hmm. you have trainers and stuff. The dance world is still functioning a little bit of, you know, survival of the fittest. Whoever can do it the best wins. You know, whoever can hang in the game the best can win. And so you're up against, if you need that day recovery afterwards, you should go to Europe because they do, Europe is a little bit more, they have a, they have a system where if you had a really hard night, you get a little easier the next day. America functions a little bit of, you know, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, you know, yeah. in New, New York City. There, there's a lot more focus on mental health these days for sure. And mm-hmm. there's therapy is not looking so, looked so down upon. Yes. But my day in the 80s and the 90s, you know, you didn't even want to be seen in the therapy room because you yeah. seen as like, oh, you have a problem. Do you know what I mean? It was very much like, Whoever, whoever can handle this the best gets the, the, you know, best parts. And, you know, and it sounds crazy and it sounds like, why would you put yourself through that? So let me, you know, tell everyone, you know, for, for me, the feeling, the experience, the, the magic of what dance brought to my soul and to my life and the experiences of being able to be with that kind of creativity mm-hmm. and art and those, the people, the, the musicians, mm-hmm. the audience, the whole experience was such a, I, I think magical is a word that you it almost can't explain it because, you know, if anybody knows what it feels like when you, I almost like to say, like, let's say each of us has a note, like mm-hmm. you have a note that, that completely gets inside your skin as to why you're here and that, and you vibrate to that note. And it's like, you go through a portal and the, you know, the heavens open up. Like it's that kind of an experience. Like, this is why I'm here. This is what I was meant to do in my life. And I can't imagine living a life without this. And that's what Mm -hmm. it was for me to dance. And so when I was diagnosed, I wasn't willing to let go of that because I'd already experienced it. I wasn't mm-hmm. fighting to get there. I had already gotten there. Yeah. Early on. I was early on in the game, but I wasn't willing to let it go. I was going to fight and figure it out. 
Okay, let me ask you, and this is kind of a two-part question. You were, you were so disciplined as a dancer. You get the diagnosis. I think a lot of people with type 1 diabetes struggle with the discipline of what this disease puts on you. So did the discipline of being a dancer help with your diabetes management or did it add a layer of anxiety because we put a lot of pressure on ourselves? I think both. I think that it definitely added to my ability and my I was all on board. Yes, bring it on. I'll do whatever is asked of me. What I wasn't prepared for was we can't control it all the time. Yeah. We can do the best that we can, but it's just sometimes it's it is what it is and you tried and either it went too low, it went too high, it didn't work out. This it didn't happen the way you planned. And so because of that, it wasn't that I got upset necessarily because of of it not working out, what I got upset about is the not working out took an effect on my body. And because of that, I couldn't dance very well. And because of that, I went into this freak out. They're going to, they're going to take away my parts. I look differently. They're, you know, they're not, they're, they're going to think we can't put her out there. You know, she could pass out on stage or she could, you know, she's just not pulling her weight anymore. So it was the trickle down effect Mm -hmm. of not being able to perfectly control the outcome of the diabetes. And so I think that I became, I also became really, really afraid of of going to bed at night. Mm. I know today we have the CGMs and we have the, you know, the pumps. But in the 80s, when you're just at the effect of the long insulin that you took, it's just that panic of, oh gosh, the performance that I just did that exercise is still affecting the shot that I just put to bed. And I have no idea how, if I overdid it or not. And now what's going to happen if I don't wake up. So I, Mm. I went into definitely an anxiety about going to sleep, which Mm -hmm. I already had sleep issues. So sleep issues became even worse because I, I, let's say I tried to take something to sleep. Like Mm -hmm. there was a period I tried to take Ambien Mm -hmm. and I panicked that the Ambien was going to put me to sleep. But what if my body needed to wake me up? Yeah. It's so a tough I one. went into a complete panic attack. Yeah. And so I end up now is drugged. Now is like I hadn't slept and I was <laughs> groggy from, from Ambien that didn't, I didn't get any sleep. So then I'm spending my day thinking, you know, this is all backfiring on me because I'm trying. So I, there was a lot <laughs> of periods for me where I feel we also didn't have diabetes educators in those days. Maybe we did and nobody told me. Right. Like I had a doctor say, you know, Zippor, there's a diabetes educator that you might want to call for advice. Wasn't right. it years later that there were all of a sudden I was like, oh, really? There could <laughs> somebody I could talk to about this stuff. So I felt very much I felt alone, but I never felt I never felt sorry for myself. I more mm. felt blamed towards myself. Mm. I blamed my body for being dysfunctional for being adequate for failing failing for not being able to be normal and so it was like my perfectionism my discipline then targeted what was wrong with my body let me ask you this too this is a and the medical team medical community probably doesn't appreciate this but did you have a family history of diabetes do you okay so the conspiracy theories are do you feel like you and this isn't a blame or shame, but you worked your body so hard in those years 
that it I'm revolted. I don't know what else to say. But I obviously have to have, have some predisposition. There mm-hmm. has to be some genetic factor in it. There could have been some ancestors that yeah. that developed diabetes later on, but that's type two. That's not type yeah. one. But I definitely believe the sleep. I definitely believe because I had insomnia issues as a child. I remember, mm-hmm. I remember being a kid and not being able to sleep. So I think that I think that the lack of the sleep, there's a lot of evidence now that that can mm-hmm. trigger a lot of health issues. And so I always, I always in my heart thought that that was probably a big part of it. Yeah. I think the stress I was under is also a part of it. Yeah. And I think environmental factors, I know I'm, maybe I got sick. I don't yeah. really remember. I could have gotten the flu or something. I yeah. remember being so overly exhausted. I remember thinking something's going to give. Yeah. When, but again, the sleep. Because yeah. I had had so much lack of sleep, I remember thinking, I don't know how my body can keep doing this. And I didn't have the confidence to go to my directors, which I should have done. It's not, it's not the dance world's fault. That's how they yeah. function. That's, that was my inability to communicate and to have the confidence to yeah. say, you know, look, I'm struggling here and I think I need, you know, I think I need some days off and I have to go rest because I'm having some issues here. Yeah. So that, that, you know, when looking back and something I say to my students, you know, now that I'm a teacher, I always try to empower them. I always say, you you have to know, even though we are in a world that the presentation is, we're very aware of mental health mm-hmm. and, and physical issues, there always will be a little bit of, well, if you, if this is too hard for you, let's, we have to find another situation that's yeah. maybe appropriate for you. So maybe you will be judged in that situation. Mm -hmm. But I also needed to be open to the fact, you know, some people used to say to me, you know, maybe you need to be in a smaller company, not the New York City Ballet. (laughs) And I remember because I, I had worked with the, the, you know, the genius, the choreographer with all of the people that I just idolized so much. And I was there with them that I, I just couldn't let it go at that at that time of my life. And then later on, years later, when it was time to be open to working with a smaller company who maybe didn't work that many hours and their seasons were two weeks mm-hmm. and three months, then I was at the point in my life where I didn't have it in me to prove myself to somebody who didn't know me and yeah. know my history. And I didn't want to compete with the young up and comings, the young dancers. <laughs> so I was just like, I'm just going to stay and stay in a place that knows me. They accept me. They, they let me hang out in the back. They kind of deal with my inconsistencies because by then they knew me, they weren't really pushing me anymore. And they're not really giving me the stuff that I still crave, but at least they were letting me, you know, letting me stay in my little corner and do my thing. Okay. When it comes to when you were still performing, what, and again, we're talking a long time ago to the listeners. So we're pricking our fingers. It takes two minutes sometimes to get your blood sugar. It's just a totally different ball game then. What did you like to keep your blood sugar at going into your performance? Kind of realizing that insulin was a major factor there. Yeah. So that, that was the issue for me is that if my sugars, unfortunately, were over 130, I had a really hard time. My extremities were really cold. My finger, the tips mm. of my fingers and the tips of my toes were cold. And mm. it was, we were in New York City and the, our, our theater I, t- I said this to you, sometimes they would bring in the the costumes and the props and everything from the outside in the wintertime, and they would open up the side door, and we'd get the blast of freezing Arctic air coming in. It was like below zero, 
And I'm trying to warm up for a performance and my muscles from the cold air, mm-hmm. I, nothing I did. It was literally like I was like the, the tin man. And mm-hmm. so I, I, I tried to keep my blood sugars under 130. And the problem with that is then I would go on stage and the amount of exercise I was doing, yeah. is, I would just drop like crazy. So this is one of the main things when mm-hmm. I had to come to terms with whether or not it was appropriate for me to stay with the New York City Ballet. One of the things that the conversations I had to have with myself was, if you stay, can you accept the fact that you might have to let your blood sugars go a little bit higher to be safe and not have plummet, mm-hmm. you know, plummet yeah. lows? And maybe you're going to have to be 140, 150, mm-hmm. up a little higher. And maybe you're not going to feel your extremities the way you want to. Maybe you're going to fall off your toes. Maybe you're going to be a little spaced out, but that's the better option than, than yeah. risking passing out and, and, and the damage that can be done to my body by having constant lows. So that was one of the things I had to really go through. Mm-hmm. And that's where the perfectionist came in, in me and the, dis, the disciplined perfectionist person was, I really didn't know if I could handle not being perfect, you know, not mm-hmm. Not, not necessarily being perfect. It's being my best. It's right. being my own personal best and my own personal potential. And that was really hard for me. And I really went through a period where I was going to quit. Mm. And, and every day I would be walking towards the director to go say, I'm so sorry. I, I, you know, thank you so much for these opportunities, but I have to go find a better, more appropriate life for, for me. Yeah. And every day my feet turned the corner and went to the studio saying, just one more day, just one more show. <laughs> and I have to tell you, Amber, it bothered me mm. because I felt I had gone through denial with my diagnosis. I mean, mm. they told me the wrong thing. So it wasn't yeah. just my fault. But I, I, the denial I went through that caused harm to my body, mm. I, was, I was here revisiting it now years later saying, am I just in such denial again about that? You know, lots of people have to accept. Lots of dancers, some had injuries, some had weight issues, mm-hmm. mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Maybe this, I'm just one of them and this is my thing. And I just have to accept that I have to find something else in my life and and I have to be open. Right. So I struggled with my own insistence that I had to stay and, and make this work. Yeah. Like, you know, maybe I don't. Maybe I'll someday come to terms with that it wasn't this huge failure and then I, I'll find something I love to do, you know, if yeah. not much, almost as much. And so at the time I was doing a lot of journaling because mm-hmm. I really, I was really bothered by my own psyche. And what I, what I realized through journaling, because I kept complaining about, you know, by that point they were, I wasn't doing the leading roles anymore. They were putting younger people in the parts that I once did. And I was like, I just want to be on that stage but the truth is, is that being on the stage was, that was painful. Yeah, It was hard to watch everybody else doing what I wanted to do. And so I was feeling like, let's, let's, let's leave, let's quit. And I was kind of like, I remember, I, I don't know if you ever saw Cats, but there's the, there's the one, the older cat and she sings that song, Memories. And, and in it, it's, you know, I remember a time I knew what happiness was. And I literally was in my late 20s singing that song to myself. And I was I was there. I was playing the violins. I was living my drama. I was mm-hmm. feeling sorry for myself. 
that I, you know, I remembered a time of my youth. I remember when I was young, <laughs> grow, you know, developing star and loving my life. And here I was, this, you know, tin man, crumpled up, diseased woman, whatever. And I was just like, oh, stop it, Zipporah, stop it. You know, and I realized through my journaling that I actually wanted to quit, wanted to quit because I wanted to be able to use diabetes as the excuse. Why oh. poor me? And that would be my narrative of my life. Oh, the young rising star that had to quit because she had diabetes. And that was the driving force. And the reason I couldn't quit is because something in me knew that I was always going to look back and wonder what could have happened if I had tried a little bit harder to what I said before, be open to not having to be perfect, to not having to always have that great performance. What if I tried something different? What if I tried to work with my own psyche and my own perfectionism and I hadn't yet found the right insulin regime. I yeah. One thing we didn't talk about was yes, I was misdiagnosed and yes, I was properly diagnosed and put on insulin. Okay, the part of the story I didn't we didn't get to is that I went I had to leave that one doctor who had me on insulin cuz the tight control thing wasn't working. I couldn't take shots at 1:30 and then go on stage and perform. Yeah. So I switched doctors, so the next doctor I found, okay, get this, told me that I was a type two diabetic and that I was being a hypochondriac by staying away from the carbs and that I should stop taking shots of insulin. And the doctor told me to stop checking my blood sugar, that I was being a hypochondriac. So for one year of my life, I did not check my blood sugars and I did not take any insulin. I can't believe you're alive. That is crazy. You know, and you, well, you know what happened? You know what kept me alive was the, da the dancing. If oh, I hadn't God. been exercising like that, I went down, I'm five, I'm almost five, six. I went down to about 90 pounds. Oh, I was so thin. The company, of course, was looking at me going, we really Please. like her. We don't, we don't know what to do with her. Like they couldn't, I mean, I had people say, we can't put you out there because it was the example to the children coming to the performances. I mean, I was, I was, I did not look good. And, and other dancers were, you know, right in front of me, they're like, say that, you know, they all thought I had anorexia yeah. because, you know, I was so thin and they're thinking, does she think it looks good? They said in front, I could hear these people saying, does she think it looks good? It looks terrible. So it's all, it was awful because I was following my doctor's orders. Yeah. Everyone around me thought I was purposely, you know, being, you know, not eating, not yeah. realizing that a doctor had told me to stop taking my insulin. So when I, when I, I actually, I actually had a dream one night and in the dream, I saw myself dead. Mm. And when I woke up, I thought, I don't think that's a good sign. <laughs> There's so, something going on there. So I went to find my meter and I didn't even know where I put it. It had been a year and I find my meter and I turn it on and it displays these lines. And I'm look, I, I, pull out my little log book, which yeah. I am surprised I even had. And it says this meter will not go this high. Yeah. And that's when I thought, okay, you're going to die. Yeah. And you need, you need to change. You need to wake up, come out of complete denial. I know I was following doctor's orders on both accounts. Yeah. 
I just needed to figure this out. So that's when I I, I went to another doctor, got on the, the right insulin regime. So now takes me back to the story of the journaling and the yes. wanting to quit. I hadn't tried the right regime yet. Yeah. I had done too much insulin. I'd done no insulin. I had not done, you know, the right amount of insulin. Yeah. So that's why I needed to stay and try. And I made yeah. a pact with myself and I said, if you try this and it doesn't work, then you can quit. But you have to try yeah. and you have to stay. And so that's when I tried insulin, but not too much insulin. A little carbs, not no carbs, but a little bit of carbs. Yeah. And that's when I was promoted to soloist ballerina. That was after all of that. So I was wow. promoted after I went all through all that. And I ended up staying for 16 years. That's crazy. Well, and here's, I'm going to wrap this up with uh, a question or maybe more of a comment for aspiring ballerinas with type one. And ballerinas, can they be male and female and all the things? Okay, I wasn't sure if that was a, that's a very ignorant uh, They call it, for, for a male, you'd say a dancer. A okay, yeah. good to know. What would you say to somebody who wants this career and has a type 1 diabetes? I, I actually have a lot of students who have type 1 diabetes who have reached out to me after mm -hmm. after I wrote my book. They do very well. I think they also make sure that their teachers know. Yeah. All the... The, the dancers around them know and know the signs and they feel very confident. I think this generation has a, has a confidence and a support yeah. to be able to say, I'm a diet, I have diabetes and this is what I need to do yeah. if I have a low blood sugar. And because they have the ways from the pumps to the, yeah. the meters yep. to instantly know what your blood sugar is, you know, in that moment, I used to have to run to the bathroom and like wait the two minutes to find out what <laughs> on with me. I think you can know instantly now. And I yeah. think, you know, my students. So what I would say to, to anybody, whether you're a dancer or not, is, you know, have the confidence to know that you're worth speaking up yeah. and know, even if you're afraid of what's, what the outcome is going to be, you deserve to be able to say, just the facts, what the yeah. facts are. Here's the facts of what it means to be a diabetic. Mm -hmm. Here are the facts of what we as people with diabetes need to do when we have a low blood sugar or yeah. a high blood sugar and educate, educate mm -hmm. the people around you. I think that's very well said. Well, Zipporah, thank you so much for joining me on the show and so many things. And we could talk for four more hours. So I look forward to continuing this friendship. And I will put in the show notes because we didn't even get to touch on the books that you've, you've written because they are obviously very intertwined with being a ballerina and having life with diabetes. So right. be sure listeners to check out the show notes because there'll be links to everything that she's done in the, in the notes. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. As I wrap up, I want to remind you that I'm here for my diabetes and the medical community. So feel free to contact me at diabetesdailygrind.com. Your continued support and love help keep the episodes coming. Cheers to the highs and lows, everyone. <laughs>